Not long after I began as a senior pastor at Sandy Springs Christian Church in Atlanta, Georgia, I soon discovered that a common practice among churches there was to have a sign out on the front lawn or at the corner of your property that would share a different message each week. The sign could be changed easily with movable letters each week to share a different message. Whether they were very fundamentalist churches or extremely liberal progressive churches or somewhere in between, just about every church in the South, at least the ones that I saw, had a sign out front. Well, sure enough, the church I was serving, considered a progressive one, was one that had a sign, and we would always share a message Monday through Thursday. It would be something like, grace spoken here, or perhaps God's love is for all, that sort of thing. Monday through Thursday. On Friday, we would change the sign and put instead the sermon title coming up that weekend and a simple invitation below that saying, join us, worship services at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. The service I'm thinking of in particular, the weekend I'm thinking of in particular, the sermon title was, Have You Ever Been to Hell? Think of the sign. Have you ever been to hell? Join us. (laughs) I'm pretty sure the attendance that week was relatively low. But that's the question I want to begin with. Have you ever been to hell? Have you been to hell? I'm not talking about that mythological place that some think where we go if we're bad and you're punished forever. Toss that terrible theology out, please. Run it through the shredder of your mind. Forget about that. I've seen enough of hell in this life. Have you been to hell? I remember visiting someone in the ICU. It was hellish. I remember standing next to the graveside where a child no more than six months old had been buried. Her mother, her grandmother, to my right. Ask them. They would say, this is hell. I've seen families that have been ruined by addiction, by abuse, both physical and verbal, sometimes included all at the same time. Have you been to hell? This story that we just heard, this strange, violent, unusual story, is told by Jesus as he is on his way to hell. It's from Holy Week. It's the week when he will be betrayed, arrested, tortured, and dragged to a cross. That's the hell he's about to encounter. And on that way, he shares this story, this strange, violent, ugly story about a wedding feast being held. A king invites all the guests to come, and some of them refuse, and so in response, they're killed. The slaves are killed. Then, there's, then the invitation goes to everyone. Everyone is invited now to come, and there's one man who shows up not wearing a tux, and he's tossed out, where there's gnashing and weeping of teeth in utter darkness. Few are chosen. Few are chosen. And it ends there. You might not have noticed this, but I leaned over to Andy after the reading was done. I said, who chose this text? <laughs> it was me, in case you're curious. You see, Jesus is on his way, and he's, he's got everything clear now. There, there's something, isn't there? Isn't there something about a crisis that clarifies our, our, our point of view, that helps us see the truth of where we are, of what really matters the most? 
There's something about that, isn't there? That allows all those things that we thought were so important. Oh, did you see the way she talked to me? Did you hear what he said to me? Do you realize how hard my job is? All that stuff gets left behind in the middle of a crisis. I remember a friend of mine, a pastor, he'd been saving up for a couple of years for a down payment on a, on a big, huge truck, a Ford F-150. I don't know why a pastor needs a Ford F-150, but all are accepted, so fine. You want to buy a big truck, it's okay. He called me after he'd been to the dealer, though, and he said, my life is ruined. What, what happened? The bank won't give me a loan. The rate's too high. The payment's too large. The time is too long. I just, I can't get the truck. I just can't believe it. It's awful. I said, okay. Not much to say. A week later, he called me again. The tone was different. Have you noticed this? Maybe it's your child calling or a close friend who calls, and you can tell just by the way they say your name, just by the way they say, Mom, Dad. I heard it in his voice. Glenn, there's a seriousness of tone, an urgency. He said, Glenn, I just came from the doctor. It's cancer. It's in my pancreas. In that moment, that truck that he wanted was no more than a broken, left-behind Tonka truck. A toy, a meaningless nothing, a piece of metal with four tires, nothing more. It's in the crisis that we, we see what matters the most when we're clear about what our, what our lives mean or don't mean. That's what Jesus is in this moment. He's in a crisis. He's on his way to hell. He's going to be arrested, betrayed, taken to a cross. How does he know that? I don't know, but somehow he knows, and it's shaping everything he's been, he's been doing. Now here we are in this week called Holy Week, and he's narrowing down the days, narrowing down to the moment when he's going to be betrayed and, and taken away, and he's clarifying his message. He wants to be clear that the words he's been sharing about peace, grace, hope, and love for three years, maybe as long as 10 years, according to John's gospel, for all these years, he wants to be sure the people understand what his message is. It's about God's grace given to the world. Can you hear it? And he tells this tale, this ugly parable with all these violent actions as a way of getting our attention, of focusing us, of bringing us to that crisis moment, to seeing it in the reality of our own lives. By the way, the parable is an allegory. The characters and some of the ideas expressed in the parable are allegorical. Who, who is the king? It's God. The son, therefore, is Jesus. The, their mission is to go out and invite everyone, the good and the bad. That's the mission of the church. Matthew, who wrote this gospel, sees that as the mission of the church that he's writing to. Our job is to go out and invite the good and the bad, everyone, and bring them into the party. But let's be clear here, by the way. There are no good people and bad people. There's only us. There's only people. It's important to remember what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the, the Russian philosopher, that the line that separates good from evil runs through the center of every human heart. Go and invite the good and the bad. Go and invite everyone to the party. Everyone is invited. It's the gift, a massive gift of grace. A massive gift of grace for everyone. Jesus wants people to understand, wants us to understand that this grace is already given. You don't have to earn it or achieve it. You don't have to prove it to yourself or to anyone else. It's already there. 
and it can be transformative in your life and mine. I'm thinking of my friend Joe. Joe was in a gang when he was in his teens, a gang in Southern California. The gang sold drugs and they sold guns. Joe had three stints in prison. During his third time in prison when he was a young adult, the chaplain came to him after a worship service one Sunday and said, Joe, I want to challenge you. You're going to get out in two months. I want to challenge you to live your life in the light of grace, not in the light of fear, not in the light of judgment, but in the light of grace. Will you allow God's grace to bless you and guide the way you live? Will you walk down that pathway named grace? Joe said in that moment, in that challenge, he turned his life around. He got out of prison two months later. He finished his GED, his high school diploma. He then enrolled in a junior college, got a two-year degree. He joined a church, became very active in the congregation. They needed somebody to administrate their drug rehab program that was sponsored by that church. He signed up for it, volunteered, and then eventually got hired as a full-time position to, to run this church's program. I met him over, over some coffee one day. He was attending my church and the Bible study that we were leading there. We went out to coffee to get to know each other better, and he just looked at me and he said, Pastor Glenn, I got to tell you, it's grace all the way down. It's grace all the way down. Those could easily be the words of Jesus. Those could easily be the words of the one we name Lord. It's grace all the way down. But in this story, there's this one guest, the one who's not wearing a wedding robe. Think of it this way. Everyone was told it's a black tie event. He's shown up in, in, in a t-shirt and a pair of, of cargo shorts and some crocodile, or some crocs. He's totally underdressed. Now, it's not being underdressed that's the problem. I read one scholar this week who says, he thinks, reading between the lines, that the king has supplied tuxedos for everyone who, who comes. There's a whole huge giant rack. Just find, just find out, find your size, put it on, then join the party. On the other side, for women, there's all these evening gowns. Just find your size and then join the party. He's graciously supplied this to everybody. But there's this one guy, the one guy who eventually gets thrown out, who refuses to put on the tux, refuses to really join the party. He seems oblivious to the fact that a party's going around and he just goes over to the hors d'oeuvre table and he starts eating all of the candied figs. Then he goes to the open bar and starts helping himself to shots, $50 shots of the super expensive bourbon. He doesn't care. He's just there for, the, for, the, he's just there for himself. You see, he's spiritually narcissistic. Everything's about him. He doesn't care about anybody else. The idea that he needs to be forgiven, that he needs to experience grace, are you talking about me? Not me. He can't even begin to have the idea that this is something he needs to do. The king in the party confronts him. He says, friend. Now in the Greek, friend doesn't really try quite get there. It's more like dude or buddy or buster or man, who do you think you are? There's some sarcasm and some anger in that, at that address. Listen, buddy, how'd you get in here? Don't you realize this is a party? Why are you refusing to, to celebrate in the party? You see what's happening? He's better than. He refuses to see himself, to even look in the mirror of grace, to see where he needs that very forgiveness in his own world. In fact, he doesn't believe he needs to be forgiven. I remember hearing a few years ago, somebody say, a, a famous person saying, I've never asked for forgiveness. My heart broke for that one in that moment. How could you make it into adulthood? 
and never one time ask for forgiveness? You see, this spiritual narcissist in the story, he's actually covering up his own anxiety. It's Edwin Freeman, the, the rabbi, the therapist, the, the congregational consultant who says any time, especially in, in, a, in, a, in a worship setting, especially in a, a, a church or a synagogue or some other uh, faith community, any time we encounter spiritual narcissism, most of the time, Rabbi Friedman says, it's covering deep-seated anxiety, deep-seated fear, deep-seated worry that we might be exposed, that one is completely frightened, that they might, the reality of who they are might be exposed to everybody else. And so they make it all about them. The whole world exists to prop them up, to hold them up, to make sure their light shines brightly while living in the hell of anxiety, in the hell of fear, in the hell of worry, that somehow they might be exposed. Friedman's quite clear in his teaching any person or organization that is governed by or overwhelmed by anxiety does not have a sense of playfulness, no sense of joy, of just being able to enjoy the moment, to enjoy the day, to, to celebrate with somebody else's goodness, somebody else's success, somebody else's achievement. When anxiety is overwhelming one, especially when that anxiety is being pushed aside, pushed down and hidden, it's impossible to experience joy. What does it look like, though? When someone encounters grace, is challenged by grace, and gives themselves up to it. I'm thinking of my friend Ted. I met Ted when he was in high school. Ted was a senior, was a great athlete, an all-conference football player on the high school football team, played both sides, played fullback on offense, he was a linebacker on, on defense. He was also a straight-A student, academically brilliant. But Ted came from a really tough home. Both of his parents were alcoholics. There was ugliness in the living room. There was ugliness in the house. It was just a, a, a terrible place. School for him was an escape. School was, for him was a place to get away from the ugliness of, of his house. And he also saw it as a ticket away from that life. He knew that he would get a scholarship for his athletics or he could get a scholarship for his academics. He was certain of that. In fact, his teachers and his coaches were telling him, you're going to be able to get out and get into a good school and have your entire way paid. But Ted had this issue. Ted was angry. The angry, no doubt, the anger, no doubt, came from his home, came from the terrible things he witnessed, the stuff that happened all the time. But he covered, he covered mad with sad, as we say sometimes. He covered that, that madness with, with sadness. Other way around, sorry. He's covered that sadness with madness. He found himself, for example, on the football field uh, in, in an important game, getting very angry after the whistle was blown and knocking somebody down, cost his team 15 yards, eventually cost his team the victory. A couple weeks later, he was walking through the, through the hallways at the school when somebody said something to him. They're just kind of having fun with him, teasing him a little bit, but he reacted with anger and he slammed the guy up against the lockers. Told him to never talk to him that way again. A week or two after that, he got into a real fight. This time, punches were thrown. The principal finally called him into his office. He said, Ted, one more, and you're off the team, and you're out of school. You know this is your ticket out. 
but one more time, and I've got to draw a line. Well, a good friend of Ted's knew what he was going through. A kid in the school happened to be a member of the church I was serving. He invited Ted to join him at, at church. He came on a Sunday morning, sat through the service, came back in the evening for the youth program, and there he heard the minister to youth talk about the grace of God, God's grace given to everyone. He questioned that. He couldn't imagine it was true for him, but he was hooked. He came back. He came to the youth program the next week and the next. Came for about three or four months on Sunday nights. Enjoyed the youth program, enjoyed the games and the fun, enjoyed the conversation, was starting to hear that there was hope even for him. But one night, they broke into small groups of about four or five. And this particular small group, he just expressed his doubts and his fears and his worry. He was open about it. He said, I can't imagine that I'm covered by God's grace. I mean, after all, look at everything I've done in my life. I've become a good athlete. I've got good grades. I'm going to get out. I'm going to prove myself to the world. And this young woman, she was 16 maybe, sitting across from him in a small group, said, Ted, don't you know by now, at this place, you don't have to be a great athlete. You don't have to have good grades. You can have all bad grades. At this place, all you have to be is Ted. Because Ted is enough. The next Sunday, I saw him after the worship service was over. It's about 12.30. I came in to get my notes from the pulpit. He was sitting in the back of that church I was serving then, by himself, weeping. I sat down and said, Ted, what's going on? He said, I can't believe it. I'm just in awe of God's goodness, of God's grace. I'm just in awe. I believe deep within my heart that deep within every human soul is that singular desire to love and be loved to receive love and to allow that love to flow through us, into us, and out of us again back to the world. That there's this constant giving and receiving of love. Last Wednesday night at the gathering, which meets over here in, in Grace Hall, it's a, it's a little worship service that happens on Wednesday nights. We have a, a small snack supper at 530. There's a worship service at 545. The adults stay for Bible study. The young people go to their various youth programs. It's kind of a fun little thing. During the, the, the homily in the worship service, I asked all the kids under 18, what do you think it means to live a full life? a full and complete life. And this one young man, about 10 years old, seated right over here to my left in Grace Hall, he raised his hand immediately. He said, a full life means to give and receive love. Everybody burst into applause and we said, yes, amen, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah. That's it. It's simple enough that a 10-year-old can name it and it's frightening enough that a 60-year-old sometimes wants to turn away from it. After all, if we, if we give our hearts in love, we risk them being broken, don't we? If I give myself to the world in the name of grace, I risk being rejected, don't I? Can forgiveness be real? Can we say, I'm sorry, without the word if, if I hurt you? To add that word if is to negate the, the, the act of contrition. Can we just have the courage to say, I'm sorry? I believe deep within us there's that longing to simply love and be loved. I want you to hear from my friend Robert Capon, a great scholar and theologian. Why do we marry? 
Why take friends and lovers? Why give ourselves to music, painting, chemistry, or, or cooking? Out of simple delight in the resident goodness of creation, of course. But out of more than that, too. Half Earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the glimpsed city it longs to become. Half Earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in that longing. It's in the longing that we find the courage to receive the grace. It's in the longing for love that we find the ability to walk that pathway, to see everything, not from anxiety, not from fear, not from worry, but simply from the standpoint of grace, knowing that the grace that blesses you is the grace that blesses me, and the grace that blesses us is the grace that blesses everyone. It is a pathway named hope. May we have the grace of God guide us on every step. Amen.